morning. All right, John chapter 9. We've been going through the Gospel of John um, this year. One of our sort of goals for the year was to preach through the entire Gospel in 2014. We've got a series which is titled, Who is This Man? And we're looking at the Gospel, asking ourselves that question. Who is this man? Who has John spent this time writing about? And we've got to the beginning of uh, chapter 9 uh, today. Um, but before we dive into it, I just want to share a story from my life that hopefully bears some um, relevance to what I'm going to speak about in a moment, is um, if you know me well, you'll know that actually um, I have to wear glasses to be able to see properly. I've got contact lenses on today, but I need something corrective uh, in my um, eyes so I can see. I can read stuff close, but if I was looking out there and I didn't have anything on, it would all be extremely blurry. I don't know if that makes me long or short-sighted. It's one of them. But I I struggle with that. And when I worked this out, it was a a staggering moment in my life because... um, I was driving home from Brighton where I'd been on some leadership training and I had a couple of guys in the car and I was dropping them off, one off in Cambridge and one off in uh, Huntingdon and then I was driving back to where, where we were living and we were driving up the M11. So I was in my late 20s and I thought I was generally fit and healthy and didn't have any kind of problems and we're driving up the M11 and the guy says, well, you, to drop me off you have to get off at junction, whatever it was for Cambridge at the time, junction 9, 10. Or something. And so I'm driving up the M11 and I'm looking, right, okay, we're driving, we're, it's a Friday night and we've been away all week and we're a bit tired and we're coming back and I noticed guy Andy who's sitting next to me in the car and I said, Andy, you know, what, what junction, what junction's that? See the big blue sign, what junction's that? And he said, oh, that's junction whatever and it was the one we had to come off with. And he looked at me and said, why did you ask me, why did you ask me what junction it is? I said, well, I couldn't really see it on the sign. <laughs> to which he went like this. <laughs> what do you mean you couldn't see it? I said, well, I could see the sign and there's, you know, lines and I could kind of make out some of the bigger, you know, words, but I couldn't see the junction number at the bottom of the sign, to which he fixed me with this stare that I could feel boring into the side of my head. When you get back, go for an eye test, he said. And I was like, I'm fine. So I, drove, I dropped him off. He gripped the car most of the way home. I don't know why. Dropped him off, and I went home, and I told this story to my wife, Melanie, and then she said, yes, you need to go for an eye test. So I booked an eye test, and I went to an eye test that week. And I went into the spectators of where it was, and I sat down in the chair, and, I, and he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I've come for an eye test, because I think there might be, my, my vision might not be right. And he says, why? And I said, well, I was driving home, and da-da-da, I was a bit tired, and I couldn't quite make out the words in the, um, on the sign, or the numbers on the sign. And he went, all right, okay. look at the eye chart, which is in front of you. He said, um, <laughs> he said, just tell me what you can read on the eye chart. To which I looked at him and said, what eye chart? To <laughs> 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 so which he just went, oh, like that. And then he, then he put this horrible contraption on my face, you know, that, those big thing, glasses things, and he starts slotting lenses in. And he put these lenses in, and suddenly, I could see it. It was like, there's an eye chart there. Look at it. And I started reading all the letters off, and I could read the bottom line, which are these tiny little letters, M, N, C, E, whatever they were. And I could read it, and it was suddenly like, wow, this is amazing. And I was really quite, he was obviously, he'd seen this lots, you know, he was like, yeah, whatever. But he said to me, he goes, he, he says, Stuart, you need glasses. And I thought, darn, I'm about, I was in my late 20s by then. He said, I need glasses to see because I, I basically haven't been seeing clearly. I'd, I, I'd fooled myself that I could see, but actually my vision uh, was gone. And things along my way, I couldn't even make out. Basically, I was blind to them. I couldn't even see that eye chart, let alone see letters on the eye chart. And what we're going to look at today is, is the whole thing about what can you see? Are you blind or can you see? And Jesus speaks into this situation. So this story is linked with the previous passage. What we looked at last week is um, Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. 
He stood there, he stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles where these great um, candles or lamps were burning that lit up Jerusalem. There were four of them in the temple courts with four uh, braziers at the top filled with oil burning that lit the place up, lit the whole city up. And Jesus stood up in that continent and said, I am the light of the world. If you come follow me, you will not walk in darkness. He made a claim about himself, claim to divinity. We looked at that last week, and then we saw what the outworkings of that, what that meant if Jesus was the light of the world. And this directly links onto that. And if you've been going through John, John has a series of signs. There are seven signs in the book of John. This is the sixth sign, and the signs Jesus performed point to a greater truth, a larger truth. So the big idea here is that when the light shines, Jesus is the light of what? When the light of the world shines, it's Jesus. You get to see who can act truly see and who is truly blind. Who, is, who can truly see and who, can truly, uh, who is truly blind. And what it, what it shows is those who accept the light, walk into light, will be saved. But those who reject the light and avoid the light will actually come under judgment. So if we've got John chapter 9, let's start at verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go to wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salaam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They say, said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So this event most likely takes place between the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've seen previously, and the next feast, which we see in John uh, chapter 10, which is the Feast of Dedication. And it involves a man who was born blind. We don't know how, how they know he was born blind, but he was. He had been blind from birth. This man had never seen uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a John setting up the fact this man was not only physically blind, but it points to our spiritual blindness, which we all have from birth because of sin's effect in our lives. We're all born spiritually blind or spiritually dead, it says in Ephesians. And the common assumption of the day was that if something bad had happened to you like that, it was obviously linked to sin, a specific sin. Now, in a general sense, all sickness and death and suffering is linked to sin from the fall when everything got shattered. Genesis chapter 3, everything got broken. But the assumption of the day was actually, it was very specific. Something he would have done, this man or his parents, would have caused this affliction on him. So it wasn't a general thing, it was very specific. He had done something, this person. What was it? And so they asked Jesus, so look at this guy. What happened? Was it him? Had he done something wrong? Or his parents done something particularly wrong which had caused this to happen? And Jesus refused to come and think in there and say, actually, it's neither of those things. It's neither of those things, but actually we have an opportunity for the power of God to be displayed in this place. And then he makes a reference. He says, night is coming. He's referring to he knows what's happening. We've seen rising opposition for Jesus through the gospel, and it ultimately culminates in his arrest and his crucifixion. 
Actually, they want him dead. We've seen them try to stone him. They're trying to arrest him so they can kill him. And he knows this is coming in his mind. He's saying, there is a time coming soon when I won't be able to perform these works like this. Um, But actually, he says, but now is still day, and I am going to work. And there is an urgency about the work he is about. And he references himself as the light of the world, back to the previous chapters, as the light of the world, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be active. And he illustrates this point by healing this man. Now, the healing is completely on the initiative of Jesus. The man doesn't seem to be involved in this at all. We've seen him in chapter 5 heal the guy at the pool, the lame man. And that, he actually approached the man. He had a dialogue with the man. He says, do you want to get well, he said to the man. And there was a bit of back and forth. It doesn't seem like that takes, happens here at all. He just sees the guy and he wants to heal him. Moved by compassion. So it says... Jesus decides, for some reason, to spit on the floor and make a mud pack. We don't know why. There are lots of fanciful theories as to why, but the ultimate is it's not explained. John doesn't explain it to us merely that it happens. So Jesus, I don't know what it would have looked like. Sometimes we can have images of Jesus where he floats around on this cloud two inches above the floor, kind of just glowing with the long hair and the white robe. And just, he seems to kind of almost aloof from all human interaction and stuff. But he, he stood there and he spat on the floor. You know, if, when I was young, we used to call it gobbing on the floor. That's what he did. He would have spat on the floor, we don't know how many times, in the mud. Now, maybe I'm just pushing this a bit. But if you're going to make a bit of mud to put on people's eyes, you probably have to spit a few times, don't you? So he's on the floor, he's making the mud pack. And then he puts it on this guy's eyes. Now, the guy obviously lets him. He's a man who's been um, begging there. Um, and so he puts it on the eye, and Jesus gives him a command. He says, go to the pool and wash. That's the command he says to him. So he's done this, and he says to the guy, he gives a very clear command. And the pool ironically means sent. That's what the word, the name of the pool means, Salam. It means sent. So he sends him, go to the pool and wash. And the man responds in faith to what Jesus', Jesus activity in his life. And he goes I imagine he must have been led or felt the way. He doesn't actually say, but he was blind. And so he goes to the pool and he washes. I don't know, he must have just splashed the water in his face. We don't know what it got in it. He stuck his face. And at that point, a miracle occurs because he can now see. And this is a stunning miracle. Blind eyes opening are big. I don't know if you've ever been involved around praying for the sick or seeing people pray and seeing people healed of various things. It's always exciting. But if you're anything like me, you want the scales to ratchet up and you want to see some of the big ones. It's nice to see people with headaches healed. You know, that's good. Or bad backs get better. And I'm not belittling them. But when you start seeing blind eyes open, you know you've hit the Premier League. Don't you think? This is, this is top-class miracles here. This is like the guy was blind and he can now see. This is an absolutely breathtaking miracle. And presumably the blind man is just like, wow, I can now see. He goes, here's a fascinating thought. He goes to the pool of Siloam which he must have felt or someone led him. Now he can see. How did he get back? Because he'd be walking and he can see everything, but does he, he won't recognise it because he's never seen it before. But he obviously manages to make his way home. Maybe friends took him. And then, it, then you get the great confusion from his neighbours. I don't know if this were other beggars or people who live around there who saw him begging. But it's like, wait a minute, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? He can now see. We used to give him money or give him food because... He had no way of earning for himself, no one to take care of him. He relied on people's compassion and charity, and now he can talk. And they're so kind of overwhelmed by this, they start making up excuses 
for actually, no, this can't, this can't have actually happened. Let's rationalise it away. This can't be the guy who born blind. This is a classic one. They say, it must be someone who looks just like him. As if, you know, his twin brother turned up who can see that's the one who is, and the blind man's obviously somewhere else, trying to rationalise it all away. And the guy's like, no, I'm the blind man. Well, obviously, he's got a new name now. He can't be the blind man. He, I'm the man, you know. I'm the man who's no longer blind. I'm not that. And they, they come to him and they ask and say, what happened? And he said, Jesus healed me. He just confesses the truth. Jesus is the one who came along. He put the mud on my eyes. He sent me away. I washed my face. I can now see. I can come back. What, 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 when I was once blind, everything has changed. And they say to him, it's great to ask a blind man, where is he? Duh, he was blind. You know, where's Jesus? And he's like, I don't know. It's, I couldn't see him. He sent me away to the pool to wash. I come back. And even if he did come back, that's the fascinating thing. He comes back. I can now see. How would he recognize who Jesus was? He couldn't see any of them. Do you know what I mean? So he's like, where is he? I don't know. He's gone. Jesus, and Jesus sort of disappears out of the story for a little while. Let's pick it up. Verse 13. So we've had a huge miracle. And so what, how do they react to it? Well, let's get the, the kind of the religious guys in and see what they think about this. So, so they, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been form, who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from uh, God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews do not believe... Uh, sorry, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does, does he now see? His parents answered, We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, where there is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where, these, where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. Okay, so what they, there's been this healing. 
bit of a, a, a to-do. And so they bring in the religious authorities to come and comment on it. And it's the Pharisees. Now, um, remember the Pharisees are these guys who are so devoted to God. They love God. They love his word. They want to keep it pure. They're, they're church-going, Bible-quoting, praying men who are devoted to God and had devoted much of their life to God. So they would be kind of right at the top of the spiritual chart. They were quite admired uh, by the people. But they quickly surmised that this healing took place on the Sabbath. And we've already seen this in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the guy at the pool, that they've come up with it because they had rules about the Sabbath. There's the, there's the Old Testament scriptural one about not working on the Sabbath, which the general sense was is kind of not doing your normal paid employment job. But what they'd added to that, the rabbinic traditions, the extra bits, the oral law, the oral traditions, the oral commandments that kind of were meant to protect the actual written scripture, they added 39 other categories of things you couldn't do on a Sabbath. So they'd taken what God had actually said and they just added to it more and more and more things. And in the first case, it was the, um, the, the bread. You couldn't carry your bed on the Sabbath. Um, and this case, actually, a healing had taken place on the Sabbath. And they're saying, actually, no, you can't do it. And we get this battle between what God has said in Scripture and man's traditions. And they're coming up against each other. And they're, cla- they're clashing. And so the, the Pharisees are inquiring about this healing. And what they see is, uh, what you see is the opinion is divided over who is Jesus. The title of our series, Who is This Man? Opinion is divided over who Jesus is. The Pharisees are very simple. He broke the Sabbath according to our traditions. He cannot be from God. Done and dusted. It's as simple as that. He broke the traditions. He broke the oral law. He cannot be a man from God. The crowd, who are kind of around there, are saying, well, actually, there are powerful miracles being performed. This guy was blind. He can now see this person. He must have been from God because of just the stunning nature of the miracle. And the healed man himself says, well, actually, he must be from God or he's a prophet from God because of the power he moves in. There must be something of the divine about this guy. Um, and so we've got opinion and back and forth. And, you know, who is this man? And then we get the, um, the Pharisees like, okay, well, let's see if we can, you know, work this out a bit more. Let's get his parents in. Call mum and dad, wherever they were. And they basically say, can you verify that this, your son, this man, was actually born blind? They were, they, they were disbelieving his testimony. They wanted to kind of undermine it. Was he born blind? To which the parents say, yes, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind. And they, they give over the facts of the case. They say, well, you've got witnesses. Yes, this guy uh, was born blind. But then they actually, they actually they, they stop short. They, they, the fear grips them than actually saying there's been a healing, there's been a miracle, and actually they pass the buck on to their son, don't they? And say, actually, get him to talk about it, because they were in fear of being put out of the synagogue, of being excommunicated. They didn't want the consequences, because if they had made a statement of faith about Jesus and what he had done in his life, if they would crossed that line and said, actually, yes, this man is from God and he's healed my son, who can now see... They would have been put out of the synagogue. The consequences of a, of a confession of faith for them would have been huge. And the synagogue wasn't just church you came to. It was more than that. It was a place, sometimes a place, a hospital where the library was. It was a, a community center, a place of fellowship. And they, were actually, they would have to have given all that up if they had made a confession of faith about Christ. And so they're in fear, they push it all back onto their son and say, actually, you know, talk to him. He's of age. He can make those decisions. He can talk about it. So they then go back and they interrogate the healed man again. Okay. They're convinced Jesus is a sinner. They've made up their mind about it. He broke 
the Sabbath law according to them. According to their oral traditions, he broke it, and they want the man to admit it. They're trying to go after him. Let's try and pin this down. But the man makes this simple, stunning truth in verse 25. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. He just states the truth. He was a man who was blind, had been blind his entire life, and suddenly he can see. I mean, for him, it's a big day, but quite depressing, isn't it? He can now see, and he's now kind of being interrogated for the miracle that's been performed in his life. If I was blabbing blind my entire life, and now I could see, I'd want to go and look at everything, everything that I'd missed, all the things, like, all the people I'd known who I'd never seen, all these kind of things. And he's now stuck in an interrogation with the Pharisees who weren't being much fun, to be perfectly honest. And so they keep going over the same ground. They keep asking him. They keep asking the same question. What happened? How did it happen? How did, you, how did you get healed? And then he, makes, he cuts through all their pretense with this wonderful <laughs> comment. He says to them, do you want to follow Jesus as well? Talk about red rag to a ball. They must have the steam coming out the ears, gone berserk at that. And they're like, no, this man is a sinner. He's transgressed the traditions. He's broken the Sabbath. There's no way... You could, we could want to follow him. And they would have been, there would have been self-righteousness in them and arrogance because they'd have known they were right with God. They were fine because they kept the laws. They kept these extra laws. They knew their, their Torah. They, they worshipped regularly. They prayed regularly. And this guy was just a beggar who'd been healed. How could he possibly? He didn't have their learning. He didn't have their study. He didn't have their understanding. How could he possibly speak into their lives? And they were just like, they just, you know, they just rejected him. And they were like, no, no. <laughs> No, we don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to do that. In fact, we're not even interested in you. You're, you're in sin, they say. And he just applies logic to it. It's like, you know, God's with this guy because he healed me of my blindness. And it says, no one, no one's, this has never happened. A man being born blind, being healed, God must be with him. Must be with him. And they're so incensed by the truthful logic that he brings them that they actually... Outraged, they actually throw him out of the synagogue. They basically say, you're in sin, who would you teach us? And they cast him out. So Jesus healed this man, he's broken into this life, and the first kind of response he gets from the, the religious people is that he is removed from among them. He's cast out. And let's just read the last passage, uh, verse 35. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who did not see me may see, and those who may become, sorry, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and he said to him, are we so blind Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. And now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus now re-enters the story. He goes up to the healed man who would never, hasn't actually seen him yet. He's met him, but he hasn't seen him. And he goes and talks to him. And he says, Jesus says, do you uh, believe in the, um, the Son of Man, this kind of messianic image um, from the Old Testament do you believe the one, in the one who reveals God to man? He reveals God to man. And then the man responds in faith and saying, yes, I do. Who is this guy? And Jesus said, it's me. I'm the one. 
I'm the one that, that the Old Testament has been pointing to. I'm the one who's been talking about. I've arrived on the scene and I am breaking in as the light of the world. And the man's response is one of total faith. He says, um, oh Lord, I believe. That's the confession of faith in its most simplest form. Lord, I believe. And this is what was his instant response? He worshipped him. He gave himself over to Jesus, giving him praise and glory and honour. That was due his position, due who he was. And then Jesus sums up kind of what happens, the point of this story, the point of the sign, the reason John recorded it in his gospel. He says, um, For judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Because we've got people in this story. We've got, um, we've got the blind man who was blind... He couldn't see a thing, but yet actually by the end of it, he's the only one who could see. He's the one who could see who Jesus really was. He's the one who responded in faith and responded rightly, giving God praise and glory, which is what he does. And then you've got, on the other side, you've got um, the Pharisees, self-righteous men who thought they knew it all, who thought they had it, who thought they could see because they studied the scriptures. They claimed to be disciples of Moses. They had the law which they'd learned by heart. They had the oral traditions which they'd built up around it, which they kept. They were men who prayed and went to temple and went to synagogue and they, they did these things. They did everything right. But actually, Jesus points out actually, you're the ones who can't see. You're the ones who are blind. The light is here right in front of you. And you can't see it. You can't see it. And actually, that's the, what the light does. It says the light comes into the world. It says those who accept the light and respond to the light, they're saved. Those who reject the light and move away, they're actually under judgment. And it's not, it's, Jesus said he came to save the sinners, but actually it's people who recognize that they're sinners, recognize who, who they need saving. And the, the, the Pharisees didn't. They thought they had it. They thought, yeah, and Jesus said, well, your guilt remains because you think you've got it, but actually you're rejecting the light. Okay, right, three things that we want, I want to pull out from this that we can learn from this story, um, and then I will close. Number one, if you're taking notes, when Jesus is around, people get healed, saved, and set free. When Jesus is around, people get healed. Have you noticed that through our study of this gospel? If you've read any of the other gospels, when Jesus is around, things happen. People get saved, people get healed, people get set free from what's binding them. What we've seen thus far in the Gospel of John, a few highlights. Jesus comes, he meets some of his first disciples, he simply calls them to follow him, literally like that. They come and follow him. Some of them he speaks into their lives, when I saw you under the fig tree, Lord, I believe and follow. He calls his disciples. We've had the wedding at Cana in Galilee. There was a miracle where water got turned into wine and it was an incredible time. Jesus cleanses the temple. My father's house will be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves and robbers. And it says many believe in him. Many put their faith and trust in him following. Jesus teaches what that means in John chapter 3. He talks about being born again. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It's not negotiable. Nicodemus, you can't just learn stuff. You have to actually be born again of the spirit from above to enter my kingdom. What it means to be saved. He then goes to a woman at the well in Samaria. And he speaks to her about living water. You drink this, you're going to thirst again. But I can give you water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. He says, where, must I, where do I get it? She says, I'm the one, one who give it to her. She is radically transformed, saved right there and then. She then goes back to her village and says, let's sit, come see the guy. He knew everything about me. He knew about my dodgy past, all the husbands I'd had and everything like that. The village is transformed, saved. The gospel goes to Samaria. We have chapter 4. We have the healing of the official son. 
where the man comes to Jesus and he says, go, your son's healed. And the man responds in faith, goes home and halfway home, one of his servants comes and says, your son um, has responded. There's the healing of the lame man at the pool where Jesus just heals him and he gets up. It causes all sorts of fuss because he's carrying his mat. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He claims to be the bread of life, to have streams of living water come out of him, be the one who gives the Holy Spirit. He claims to be the light of the world. And we've had the woman caught in adultery at the beginning of chapter 8 where um, Jesus speaks that into her life and he he transforms her when they wanted to, to kill her. When Jesus is around, things happen with people. And we haven't even looked at the other three Gospels where if you look at them, it's story after story of God breaking in one after the other, saving people, healing people, setting people free. And there's a classic verse. If you look in verse 4, in my translation, what's the first word? In your translation, my one is we. Is that what's in yours? We. Jesus says, he's with his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus didn't say I, although he did. He said we. So there's actually a dynamism, actually, it's not just Jesus doing things. He's actually saying, we, as my followers, we're going to go and do these things. We fast forward to the book of Acts. Jesus died. He's risen again. Returning to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts. What happens? Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. Whee! That was a good sermon, that one. I'd love to preach that sermon, but the church explodes in growth. 120 to 3,120, all in one here. You read through the book of Acts, you've got the healing of the lame man. Peter and John went to pray, they met a lame man on the way, he's healed. And there's all that fuss, they're preaching. More and more people are getting saved, many more are getting healed. There's the whole thing about the shadow, Peter's shadow, you know, falling on people, praying, there's all these things happening. You read through books of Acts, when Paul comes in, it goes on and on. And the point is, For the life of the church, for men and women who follow Jesus, who have the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in us, this is what life should look like. This is normal behaviour, that when we're around, people should get saved, healed, and set free. This is normal. This is not abnormal, because when you read the life of Christ and then his followers afterwards in the New Testament, and then if you want to study church history down the, the ages, this is what happens. People get saved. And it's, it's true for us as a church. We've had, in the last few weeks, we've had people stand up and testify and pray of people being um, set free. My wife spoke about it, actually, of just something God came to her, set her free. She was released from some stuff in the past. Jeremy and Catherine are actually here today. They came, I think it was last week, both told incredible stories of people they'd met, and they were talking to them. Jeremy t- ended up, went to a counsellor for about something and ended up, counselling his counsellor who wanted to know all about Jesus and he said he spent, that, he spent the session telling them about Jesus because they wanted to know um, and Catherine had another crazy story like that We're in, I was in life group just this week and one of the ladies in our life group was just sharing a story so I'm at work you know, and people keep wanting to know about Jesus want to know about church they keep coming to talk to me about that these things are happening um, I had an incident just um, this last week um, where I was out um, doing some training, and um, when you're with a bunch of guys who are doing physical activity, one of the things you talk about is all the injury niggles, especially when you get on in years. I know I only look 25, but I'm a little older than that. And people are like, oh, I've got a bad back. And, Oof. and I've been hearing this for weeks, and I just suddenly thought, okay, this is, there's enough with the hints. 
I'm going to start praying for people. So there's one guy, oh, my back, see my back, I can't do it. And I said, right, Rick, I'm going to pray for you. I'm praying for you this week, every day. I'm going to pray that God heals your back. And he just kind of looked at me like, I'm thinking, right, I'm going to see him tomorrow. Um, and we'll see how that one goes. But I thought, I'm just, if Jesus is around, people should, something should be happening. And so I just want to put that out there to you, that this is what life should be like. How do we... How do we generate this as a culture? Well, the image of the thermostat is always helpful. If you've got a thermostat in your house and you want your house to be warm, obviously this time of year not so much, but when the winter kicks in, um, you, 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 the thermostat, you set the temperature. I want it to be this temperature. So you turn it, click, 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 it goes round. I want it to be whatever, 20-something, whatever, in the house. But the temperature at that point isn't there, is it? It's got to rise. The, the heating kicks in. But you need to set it somewhere. And one of the ways that you set it in a church is you just tell every possible story you can of what God's doing. Because I find that builds faith. If I hear a story from over here about, do you know what happened to me at work when I spoke to someone, I did this, I prayed for someone, this happened, I get built up and I rise a little bit. When I was here, I suddenly, oh, okay, if God can use you, maybe he can use me. And then someone over here tells a story and it's like, wow. I slowly start to rise and my faith starts to rise and I get more a bit more like a bit more hungry for it and a bit more I'm now looking for it. I now start to say, God, use me today to advance your kingdom somehow. I want to pray for someone, I want to speak into a situation, I want to show kindness, love and compassion to someone because they need it, because I want to see your kingdom come. And I put that out there to church. If you've got stories that God has done in your life in the last week or two, we'd love to hear them from you. We worship time, we'll pray, there'll be some space. Come and share your stories with us so we can be built up. We'd also love to pray for you if you are sick today. At the end of the meeting we'll have an opportunity to pray for you. God opens blind eyes. Whatever you've got, I'm sure is probably less than that, but even if it's not, we're going to pray anyway. Because we want to see God break in and heal you. So get ready. If you're sick, we'd love to pray for you. Number two. uh, When Jesus is around, it brings opposition. This is the not-so-fun point. When the kingdom of God is moving, when Jesus is active in his church, when things are happening, the enemy does not like it. The worldly systems we face do not like it. Religious people do not like it. There's a reality that when the light shines, the darkness is exposed, and there is a a clash of kingdoms. Now, this isn't dualistic. You know, it's not like Star Wars, dark side, light side of the force, lightsabers, you know, all that kind of thumb. Jesus is triumphant, Jesus is victorious, but there is still a battle raging around us. The victory is assured, but we are still within it. And when the gospel is advancing and working, there is opposition. Jesus found it himself. Ultimately, it ends in his death on the cross, doesn't it? And actually, we've, we've tracked through the Gospel of John, and we'll see it. it rises and rises and rises to ultimately his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And as followers of Jesus, we're not exempt. I listed that stuff about um, the early church and how exciting that was, and I'd love to have seen that, been a part of that, of church, seeing those things, that many people say, that many people here, wouldn't that be amazing? But sometimes we miss out the other bits, where Peter and John were pulling up. They healed a guy. They preach, they get pulled before the authorities, beaten, and beaten isn't, beaten's bad, by the way, bad. And then they get thrown out. And then more and more great stuff happens, and then what we have, Stephen, who stands up and he preaches, and they kill him. And the church is, is kind of scattered. And even through that, God does amazing things. Philip, 
the Ethiopian eunuch, etc., etc. But there is still opposition that comes against the church um, with us. And just to clarify, I, when I mean opposition and persecution, I don't mean opposition if you're being an idiot. If you're being an arrogant, self-righteous, stupid Christian and people don't like you for it, that's not opposition. That's stupidity. That's, that's just, don't be like that. If you, but if you're being gracious, humble, kind, and loving and caring for people, and then opposition comes, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. When people hate Jesus and they hate you because of Jesus, not because you're a twit. I mean, that's what we're talking about. When they hate the light in you, that's what we're talking about. And it can come in many forms. We can face opposition. In this kind of country, in this society, it's usually lower level things. We, we read around the world, it can get a lot more extreme in certain places. But you can face it in terms of ostracism, where you're just excluded from stuff, excluded from groups, excluded from things at work. They don't want to talk to you. You're kind of given the cold shoulder. It can be malicious gossip, where people actively try and just say bad things about you because they just don't like you and they want to do you a disservice and cause you harm and pain. It can be mean excluded or being passed over for something, you know, promotions at work, that kind of thing. You can be act- actively, t- things be taken from you. It can resolve in threats and even physical um, abuse as well. So there's a whole kind of myriad of what this can look like. Um, but a couple of things that the Bible speaks into this about it, and they're, they're somewhat helpful. Well, they're, of course they're helpful, it's from the Bible. But sometimes you read them and you think, really? That's meant to be helpful? The first one from Peter. Peter himself says this, I love this one. When he's talking about persecution, he says, don't be surprised. <laughs> Thank you. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange were happening. We can often feel like that. You, you get a kickback of something and you're like, Lord, what's happening to me? You know, I did something for you, I stepped out in faith, something amazing happened, and then there was a kickback against me. And, and, and Peter says, and Peter of all people, he's you know, made his mistakes, had his problems, and he says, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening. You should expect it. This is normal. They, they persecuted Jesus, they persecuted the prophets. Guess what? They're going to persecute you. Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says... Um, consider it a blessing when people revile or persecute you on my account because your reward will be great in heaven, he says. I don't like that verse, to be perfectly honest. I'd rather Jesus, I'd rather Jesus said, it's not going to happen to you, everything's going to be fine and you're going to get a reward in heaven. But he doesn't say that. He says it's actually a blessing when you are persecuted or reviled for my name's sake on account of me. He says, because your reward will be great in heaven. There is something better coming than this earthly life. And actually, Paul says in Romans that actually persecution and opposition actually brings out good stuff in us. It actually conforms us more to the image of Jesus. He talks about suffering producing endurance and endurance producing character and a character producing hope. And that God's love as a result be shed abroad in our hearts. And so actually, opposition been coming against us as believers, as a church, it actually has a lot of positive effects on us. It's not something we seek like we're masochists, but actually when it comes, when you face it for doing the things of the kingdom, the works of the kingdom, um, there are many positives. So if you're facing opposition now, first thing, don't be surprised. Don't think, oh, what's happened? Because Jesus said, uh, Peter said, don't be surprised. And if you are in that situation, we'd love to pray for you today. I think one of the best things you can do in that situation is, number one, you go to God and you tell him how it's doing. 
tell them how you're doing with it all. You go to your fellow believers in your church, in your small groups context, your friends, and say, this is what's happened to me. Can you pray for me? Then ultimately we're called to stand firm in the face of opposition. Not to bend, not to break, to be confident in what God said. Think about the man in the story. He was pushed and pushed and pushed. And what did he say every time? Jesus healed me. Jesus healed me. Why you keep asking me? Jesus healed me. And they wanted him to recant. They wanted him to change it. They wanted him to undermine it. And he just stood his ground. And he said, Jesus healed me. End of story. There's, there's nothing more to add to that. And then the results for him were pretty dire. He got kicked out of the synagogue. But he, he wouldn't bend and he wouldn't break. He just stood there and said, Jesus healed me. End of story. I'm not going to change. Last one. When Jesus is around, it shows who is truly blind and who can truly see. The key point of the story. We see the miraculous power of God at work. A man who was born blind can now see. It's incredible. But in the Gospel of John, his signs point to bigger things. There is the the wonder of the miracle, which is great. But actually, there was a physical blindness healed, and the man could now see. But actually, Jesus came ultimately to heal a spiritual blindness. That was what his ultimate goal was. And the spiritual blindness was called by sin. The Bible says we're all in sin. We're all slaves to sin. We're all dead in our sin. We've been sinful since the moment we were conceived. It says we've been born into this. And we can't see. We're spiritually dead. It's, it's, we're blind to the things of God. And as a result of that, we're under God's righteous judgment. Because we are guilty uh, sinners before him. And you've got... The two guys in the story, you've got the Pharisees, the church-going, Bible-quoting, spiritual people, they love God, but they were blind. They were caught up in dead, empty religion. They were going through the motions, going through the traditions, and it wasn't taking them anywhere. In fact, it was taking them further from God. They were dead, and they didn't even know it. They were blind, and they didn't even know it. They couldn't see. And then you have the, healed man, uh, the, the blind man who got healed, and he was hopeless, he was helpless, he was trapped in a world of darkness that he could not escape of his own. He didn't really know anything other than that he was blind. And what happened? He was healed, set free, and he could truly see. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Yeah. Where is he? Jesus said, I'm it. And he said, Lord, I believe. I believe. And it turns out in this story, the great irony of how John's wrote it is the blind man's the one who could see and the guys who could see were actually completely blind. The one who was healed saw his saviour, and the ones who thought they knew where the saviour was coming from totally missed out. And the question today, guys, is can you truly see? The question for us is can you can truly see? If you're not a believer here today, you're not a Christian, I submit to you you cannot see. How do we deal with that? You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn around. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, as the only one who can save you, the only one who can make you see things clearly in this world. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to chat with you at the end. If you're a believer here, the question comes to you is, how do you keep your vision clear? Because if you've been saved, you've been born again into a living hope, but actually we're called to work that out. We're called to move at it daily. There are many verses in the Bible that talks about us being saved and the security of that, which I completely believe in. But at the same time, coupled with that is the life that we are to live as believers. We're saved by faith alone, but your faith is not alone. 
There needs to be an outworking of it. There needs to be a manifestation of it. There needs to be some evidence of it in your life. And so my question is to you, are you building on that? Are you building on that? Is there some evidence that you are saved, that you are living this life, that you are going on with God day by day? Is the word of God something that is important to you, that is something that is key to your life? Um, guys here from Real Life Church, we've been telling, I've been telling them to read along with John's gospel as we've been preaching through it. Once you've read it, read it again. It's not that long. Keep going. Keep studying. Keep asking that question, who is that man? Writing down anything you find. Get into the word of God. Are you living a life of prayer, daily connecting with him? You know, every single day, praying, our Father who art in heaven. We've got our prayer meeting this week where we don't do our life groups. We gather together, so we pray to kind of mark that in our life as a church. Prayer, connecting with God, keeping ourselves clear, keeping our eyes open. Do you keep short accounts of God in terms of your, the sin in your life? We know we've been saved, so our position is, is secure, but our condition changes. We know we, we get into all sorts of things that we shouldn't have. Are you repenting, keeping that kind of short accounts with God and getting on track with him regularly, week by week, day by day, dealing with those things? Are you having fellowship with other believers, making them part of your life, talking to them, connecting with them, getting part of the, the structure in the church that, that enable you to get to know, know one another on a deeper level? We, here at Real Life Church, we have life groups which meet regularly, that people get to meet with one another, pray with one another, talk to one another, build that now. Are you giving yourself over to worship? worshipping God, putting your eyes on him. because I find, When you put truth in you, your vision becomes clear because you see God more clearly because you are, you are speaking stuff out that just helps us and builds us up. Well, yeah, then we're going to worship together now. And so we have a practical opportunity. So let's, let's sharpen up our vision. Let's keep our eyes completely clear and completely focused on what we're going. Matt, do you want to come up get ready? The band, come up. Does anyone else want to stand? I just want to pray for us. As we finish. Fantastic. Do you want to just close your eyes? Um, maybe open your hands, whatever you need to do to, you know, kind of engage with God on that level. And I'm just going to pray with us before we, before we sing. Holy Spirit, I ask you just come amongst us now. Rest upon us now, Lord. Lord God, we want to say we love you. We praise you. Lord, we want to thank you that you're the light of the world that shone into the darkness. Lord, when we were in darkness, lost, hopeless, helpless, Lord, you came and you saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. And Lord, I want to say thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And I ask today, God, that you would sharpen our vision, Lord God, where things have got dull in our mind, unclear in our hearts because of just the stuff of life pouring in busyness. God, we ask you, fill us again afresh. As we sing these songs, God, stir our affections for your glory, for your son, for what you did on the cross, Lord Jesus. God, where we face opposition, God, we ask you, cause us to stand firm on the truth of your word and not budge from it, Lord. Give us grace and courage for that, Lord God. And as we leave this place and go out to life, God, we ask you to give us grace to see many people saved and healed and set free. <laughs> Lord God, if you want to be used, say, God, use me. If you want to be used by God, say, God, use me. Say, God, use me this week. Use me this week to speak to my neighbours, my colleagues, my friends, the person in the train, on the bus, the guy I bump into the shop. Use me 
to bring your love, your compassion, and your kingdom in. Lord God, we ask you to have mercy on us and on these prayers we offer you, Lord, and use us this week to bring many people to come and know you. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Good morning. My name's Matt. Um, 